Hi, everyone. I'm Len Epp, co-founder of LeanPub and host of our Front Matter podcast. Recently, I had the great privilege of interviewing special guest Guy LaCharles Gonzalez for the second time on this podcast. Guy last appeared on the podcast in March 2020, right at the start of the pandemic, so we spend a little bit of time talking about that and some details of the impact that that had on his work and on the book publishing industry more broadly. Guy knows a ton about the book industry, and one reason I wanted to have him on was to discuss the U.S. Department of Justice's suit to block the merger of two titans of the U.S. book industry, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. Now, I know I just said I got to talk to Guy recently, but this interview actually happened before the result of the case was announced even more recently. And spoiler alert for those of you who don't follow the book industry news, the DOJ actually succeeded in getting a permanent injunction blocking the merger. We'll put links to all of this in the transcription of this episode, which you can find on the LeanPub website. But I just wanted to mention this is actually our second video interview, which you can watch over on our YouTube channel. If you go there, please like and subscribe and comment on the interview. But if you don't, that's okay. Please like and subscribe and leave a review wherever you found this episode in podcast land. Okay, that's it. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Guy LeCharles Gonzalez. Based in New Jersey, Guy is currently Chief Content Officer at Library Pass, where he's working to make digital comics more easily available to schools and libraries. Guy has had many roles in the media business over the past 25 years, including being publisher and marketing director for Writer's Digest, founding director of programming and business development for Digital Book World, and being the project lead on the Panorama Project, where he worked on a unique effort to determine the effect of library lending on book sales. You can follow him on Twitter at, G, at, at G. LeCharles and check out his website at loudpoet.com, or you can subscribe to his blog and read his latest posts. In this interview, we're going to talk about what he has been up to since his first appearance on the podcast, the ongoing lack of transparency around library sales, the U.S. Department of Justice's antitrust case against Penguin Random House's bid for the publishing company Simon & Schuster, and some of the latest issues being discussed in the book industry. So thank you very much, Guy, for being on the Front Matter podcast a second time. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people about their origin story, but since you've been on before, I'll just point people to a, a link to the to the previous episode where you appeared. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you've been up to since our uh, our first interview, which was um, at a sort of ominous time at the beginning of March 2020. Yeah, I think we literally talked right as things in the U.S. started to transition from, huh, something's happening to, oh, this is serious, and uh, quarantine started. Uh, so it's, it's been a busy two and a half years. The At that point, I was about six months, a little more than six months into the Panorama Project. Um, as we were talking, ironically, I had just started uh, with a second client that I was doing some work on the side for that turned out to be my current job, Library Pass. So in that period, I was helped. They were just getting started. They had taken over this product, Comics Plus, from a previous owner, had repositioned it as a library and school only product, got rid of the consumer side. So I was helping them, you know, kind of position it for the library space. And at the same time, the pandemic was starting to, it, it was becoming clear this wasn't a couple of weeks or a couple of months, even. This was a, hmm. This is going to have a dramatic effect on a lot of things, and the timeline is unclear. And a big part of my role with Panorama Project uh, was premised on my proximity to New York City, my ability to engage in person with key people in the industry to kind of really advance the mission of the project. And obviously, that was not happening anytime soon. Um, And at that point, if I remember correctly, Macmillan had moved forward with their embargo on library ebooks, which had become a you know critical flashpoint in the work we were doing at Panorama. Um, and then I don't think it took very long. I want to say less than a month into the pandemic, Macmillan lifted that embargo and went back to their original library ebook terms. Libraries were shutting down. Physical access uh, was. Uh, depending on where you were in the country, limited to not available at all. The demand for digital content was really growing. And so on the one side, I had Panorama Project, my main uh, initiative that I was working on, that was in in a weird place. Uh, We were on the verge of launching the consumer research study that we had put together that ended up being delayed about six months total because we certainly we were planning to put it in the field i want to say april like it was going to run april may maybe into early june you know depending on how long it took us to meet our um, sample targets and obviously we didn't want to put this out there in the what 
you know, in the middle of, we thought, a raging mm-hmm. global pandemic, because obviously it was going to impact uh, the a the way we framed these questions, which were all about how you're engaging with digital content, where libraries fit in, which was drastically changing at that moment. So we ended up putting a pause on that and kind of reestablishing, all right, we, we know what our goal is with this research but it's becoming increasingly clear we can't just wait out this pandemic. We're going to have to factor it in to our survey. Otherwise, the results are going to be questionable. You know, well, you asked these questions, but you didn't reference the pandemic at all, or you only asked about the pandemic and it was over two weeks later. You know, who knew? So that took a lot of retooling. So there were a couple of things happening for me at that point. Panorama was both evolving a little bit but it was unclear in what direction because of the pandemic and then library pass was kind of accelerating faster than expected because the demand for digital content made our product comics plus um immediately uh i'd say way more popular in the beginning than it had any right to be under normal circumstances but because schools were closing the demand for digital content was you know insatiable they needed as much as they could find even if it were comics which for some schools you know comics are welcomed and we have uh really progressive librarians who see the value of reading regardless of what the format is um and then you've still got you know old school teachers and librarians who believe comics are not real books and they'd rather kids not read them um so there we didn't see as much of that resistance in the first six months or so because schools just needed any digital content they could uh, get their hands on so i kind of was ended up at this personal crossroads of unclear which direction the panorama project was going but definitely the main thing i was brought on that kind of personal engagement was you know on the back burner for an indeterminate amount of time by then you know every major new york publisher had uh went fully work from home offices were closed and they stayed that way through the entirety of 2020 so around the summer on and, and a personal note a month into the pandemic my father died from oh. COVID. so he was one of the early you know now turns out very early uh victims of the pandemic um so there was that you know personal dealing with i feel like those first six months there were three groups of people the people who had someone they personally knew die or at least get sick people who by extension knew of someone and then people that hadn't affected at all and i feel like that really influenced how serious you took uh, what was happening at that point. So I, um, in the summer, the library pass was getting to a point where the CEO, who is my former boss at Library Journal and School Library Journal from years ago, uh, things were getting to the point where he was confident that the company was on the right track and wanted to staff up rather than to, uh, rely on consultants. So he made me an offer um and initially it was like all right that's interesting but i've got panorama in this hand which is pretty solid work i'm really into and but it's long-term future is very much in doubt right now there was no indication from you know overdrive the main funders or the um, advisory board who uh, helped guide things there was no indication that they were like all right we're going to shut this down um but there was also no guarantee that they wouldn't versus a library startup which are two of the scariest words to put together in my mind startups are you know challenging enough a startup in the library world is really challenging and a startup in the library world that's taking over a product that had a flawed history kind of added to the hmm, is that something i want to kind of hitch my wagon to or do i want to stay over here but you know the the things I was working on to kind of get answers to on the panorama side, Library Pass was actively engaged in figuring out how to solve. So do I want to debate and discuss and theorize about how libraries can better work with digital materials and publishers can give better deals? Or can I go work somewhere that's actively trying to do that? How do we get libraries access to this digital content at affordable rates with as little friction as possible? So it took it took several months for things to solidify, but ultimately I accepted the role. And so I'm actually, this is now my uh, third anniversary because I officially started full-time with them in October of 2020. 
Um, so that's what I've been doing professionally with them. We've been getting it off the ground. We did a serious pivot to make it uh, primarily a K-12 product first, public library second. Uh, historically, it was a consumer product with a public library uh, version. And if you're dealing in schools, you've got a lot of different concerns to worry about versus public libraries. There's a lot of concerns about age appropriateness and ensuring kids have the right uh, access to the right content. And this was before all the current wave of book banning activity had blown up. We were just kind of, you, you work with schools, you're aware of these things uh, anyway. So a lot of the work we did to reposition, not just the product itself, but we had to kind of reassess 20,000 titles in the collection, which had been given a much more consumer-oriented age rating, which is basically teen. Everything is good for teens, and a lot of it is good for kids, too, because it's comics, um, when in reality, that would not fly in schools. You know, So a lot of what we had originally identified as, not us, but the previous owners as kids and teen content, you know, went up to an age level. So that became teen and young adult. In some case, there was stuff that they had as teen that was adult level and wouldn't be appropriate in schools at all. Um, so we put a lot of work into developing these age-appropriate guidelines, putting in a process to kind of ensure that both the content we were bringing on met those guidelines, but also reevaluating content that we'd inherited and ensuring that, that they met those guidelines as well. And we were about six, nine months into that process and things were going well. And then suddenly, you know, genderqueer became public enemy number one. And that was an interesting title because we had it in the collection and we have the ability as a customer, you have the ability to basically weed out any content you don't want. It's an unlimited sim simultaneous subscription model. So you subscribe to a collection of content based on age tiers. So public libraries tend to take the full collection and then make them available to uh, patrons in different levels. Schools want what's appropriate for the schools. But what you're buying into is a large catalog that you as a librarian have not individually evaluated every title. So you're trusting our process to some degree. But we know that, you know, I'm here in New Jersey. We've got customers in Texas and Florida and California and Maine the definition of age appropriateness is going to differ not just in every one of those states, but in every city, in every one of those states. So we recognize that here's our guidelines. They're publicly available. You can understand how and why we made our decisions. But as a customer, you know, if you decide that book is too strong for your audience, you can just disable it from your collection. Your collection is yours to control. What you can't do is tell us, oh, you're wrong. That book should be young adult and shouldn't be available to anybody at this age level. Like that's not your decision to make for us and the rest of our customers. That's a decision you get to make for your collection. Um, so we were kind of ahead of the book ban curve and fingers crossed so far have not been caught out by a book that caught us by surprise where we've had objections. Um, they're either right on the margin and occasionally we've agreed and say, you know, all right, in context upon further review, yeah, that probably should go up an age level. Manga is the most challenging. Um, it's super popular. You know, I don't know about you, but as a kid growing up, I don't know any kid that read at their age level. You know, I was in junior high school already reading Stephen King. And I remember the first time I read Flowers in the Attic, I was probably 11 years old. Ironically, that's uh, shelved in the YA section these days in Barnes and Noble, but as a kid, it was absolutely an adult book. So the um, the oh, and I just blanked where I was. Uh, oh no, that's that. that's that's interesting. I mean, you've shared you've shared so much there. Thanks for thanks for all of that. I mean, it's obviously been a busy two and a half years um, in lots of different ways for you and and particularly, I mean, for the book publishing industry, right? I mean, you know, with pandemic coming, there were like paper shortages i mean and sort of that that delayed book launches um yep. uh there were you know there were huge spikes in sales because people were at home and had more time there were huge spikes apparently in book like project kind of um ideas that people were pitching and books that people were writing and sort of you know submitting to publishers and agents where they could uh, because yep. they had more time on their hands <laughs> um uh and and i mean so many other things but 
Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was, in the, and I, I'd like really like to get into some of the details about Comics Plus and what you, you mentioned, the flawed history of comics and the sort of different views that people have of their appropriateness for being in schools, which is just a super interesting subject on its own. Um, but there is an ongoing lack of transparency around library and book sales data generally and that is just like for those for those listening who aren't aware of it and you know aren't into sort of in the weeds of the sort of book publishing industry news and blogs and stuff it's just actually a very fascinating thing so for example you mentioned at the beginning what at the time was a huge controversy in the book world in the u.s which was mcmillan saying that it was gonna you know not do library ebook lending anymore i think it's basically what they, well, they were embargoing yeah they were going to window for eight weeks new releases and they jacked up the prices uh, yeah it was it, what it, they would make available exactly it was complicated and and um uh the ceo at the time i believe his name was john Sargent. Sorry. um he, he sort of sent out these these letters um occasionally like you know kind of announcing the the plan in response to the controversies that that responded to it and i remember him saying in one it was sort of a throwaway line, but he basically kind of, and I'm going to put this in a cartoonishly exaggerated way. He sort of said it was like a commie plot, the library that, that like he didn't, he didn't say that, but he said was like, there's basically activists out there who are trying to turn Americans into a nation of borrowers rather than buyers. Yeah. And it was this very like kind of bracing, like, wow, it really is that simple. You know, um, there's just this sort of top hat monocle capitalism that's, you know, at stake here. And I say that because for a lot of people, the library is a, is a, is an ordinary, uncontroversial in, in itself kind of public good, um, a place where you go to find books you can't afford uh, to buy um, uh, all of or to discover books that you then do go buy because you want to have your own copy. It just seems straightforward that a library would be good for the book publishing industry. Right. Uh, but uh, but a lot of people actually really don't think so. Um, and, and, you, you, and then when it comes to things like what the Panorama Project was trying to do, which was look into it and see, you know, it, but to put it very in the simplest terms, you know, is it true that, I mean, because it, it is an interesting question and it is an open question. Is it true that public lending of, of ebooks in particular cannibalizes sales of books from book publishing companies who then, to put it in the cha most charitable way possible, don't have the money to fund new book projects and things like that? Uh, is it right. true? But it's hard. To, how do you get the data, right? And the, that that's the huge problem. And one of the many tricky features of it is A, their competitive businesses, B, a lot of the big publishers got done for collusion, right? So, you know, they're like, we don't, well, if we're now sort of participating in a project where we're sharing all our data with each other to sort of figure out book pricing things, you know, does that put us in a tricky spot and stuff like that? But, you know, it's now two and a half years since we spoke and like, you know, there's been controversy after controversy about that kind of thing. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the current situation and why there is this ongoing lack of data. So... So I think you zeroed in on one of the legitimate obstacles that um, you know publishers justifiably have concerns about uh, being accused of collusion. Um, the AA, the entire structure of the AAP is built to all and BISG as well, Book Industry Study Group. Both of those organizations have structures that allow live, uh, publishers to engage and collaborate with clear guidelines and regulations to ensure that they can avoid those issues. So yes, it's a legitimate concern, but no, you already have structures in place that if this were a priority for you, and that was one of my big complaints about the very existence of Panorama Project. In my mind, it's like this, if this was important to publishers, AAP could figure this out. BISG could definitely be the central hub for collaboration because they are an industry group, not just a publisher-specific group like AAP. So what I found uh, during my time at Panorama and then what I was able to observe more freely once I wasn't at Panorama is the, the logistics of aggregating and sharing that data in a way that publishers would be comfortable absolute serious legitimate obstacle uh on the panorama side some of the you know, research we did into figuring out uh how panorama might actually be able to facilitate that so the guy that was running it before me his um mandate was to kind of figure out could panorama build 
such a project, whether a data repository or a system. And they basically stopped after A, publishers were really leery about agreeing to anything that would see their data shared. But the price tag on it was uh, pretty high. The ISO estimates of about half a million dollar investment just to build the infrastructure that would have the security and the capability to take in this data. So that was a huge legitimate obstacle that, again, no one was willing to, you know, Overdrive was funding the Panorama Project as a starting point. They also were not looking to drop a half a million dollars into an effort, particularly when the partners they were trying to support, you know, on the publisher side, were leery about it to begin with and weren't willing to contribute to uh, the effort from a financial perspective. So that was a legitimate obstacle. The reality of, and so you and I, before we started recording, we're talking about the public books article on uh, book data. And one thing that article gets into that um, usually you don't see a lot of reference to is libraries, people forget that libraries by design are built for privacy. You know, one of the advantages of using a library is you can go read books that for a variety of reasons, you might not feel comfortable buying at the bookstore or ordering from Amazon. It's information you want access to, but for legitimate or not legitimate reasons, you don't want a paper trail to you. And kind of connect the dots to the book banning, it was one of the biggest arguments about gender career is there was a, there's a belief that that's an important book for teenagers in particularly going through their own uh, issues, being able to read a book that can speak to them about their experiences and getting it at the library privately gives gives them the privacy to kind of understand that aspect of things and not have to worry about you know the bullying that comes with you know being depending on where you are wondering if you're transgender or being transgender and not knowing how to communicate that so that goes back to libraries have a lot of data that they can't share and don't have the infrastructure to share even if they were willing to my annoyance the one exception to that is it was libraries who pushed Overdrive to support Kindle back in the day because so many patrons had a Kindle and wanted to read their ebooks on a Kindle. And this is my personal frustration with libraries. It's like they take the customers always right to the worst extreme. So yes, your your patrons have a Kindle, but your privacy is a number one tenant in why you exist. And so you're choosing convenience and circulation numbers over maintaining privacy. So, and this circles back to Macmillan and data about ebook lending. So one of the things I was, I couldn't get anybody ever to go on the record. We did some limited experiments that basically in a very isolated way proved you could take a book, make it freely accessible in the library beyond just the normal uh, single user licensing and drive consumer sales in a very targeted way. And that's usually through the community reads. The the couple that we measured were community read programs. So for a month, the library would make this uh, book available, no holds, no wait lists, unlimited simultaneous access as a community read. And the publisher would have to be involved because the publisher is ultimately the one that has all the data. They were able to benchmark the book sales positioning before the effort started, before promotion of the effort even started, then they could measure the impact of the promotion of the upcoming library offering, the period that the library had it available to everyone, and then after it went back to single user licensing. And in every instance that we were able to measure, the evidence was at worst neutral, at best a sales booth boost before and after, never a negative. Now, lots of caveats to go with that. Uh, I think all but one of those experiments were with one publisher. Um, they were all mid-list books, not you know, not a major bestseller. And what you'll hear from publishers anecdotally, who so there's the Macmillans who publicly declared libraries cannibalize sales, and that's why we're making these changes. There's at least one other big five publisher who historically has enacted policies that expressed that belief, even though they've never publicly stated that. And then 
the rest of the big, ironically, HarperCollins, who when they were the first to move to metered access back in 2010, 2011, um, moving away from perpetual licenses. And they were the enemy, like public enemy number one. They stuck to that 26 or 52 checkouts, one year, two year period, but never windowed by a time, always by checkouts. And once though you hit that checkout limit you had to relicense the book that is now considered the best of the metered programs they haven't changed it to my knowledge um everyone else has iterated on that so you've got hybrid versions of checkouts or time and that was the criticism of mcmillan's uh complaints and overdrive uncharacteristically released data that proved McMill- I'll charitably say Macmillan's math was wrong. I won't outright say they lied, but they, their math was wrong. And Overdrive showed the data that said their average book was only checked out eight times and expired because Macmillan had a date expiration. So it was a two-year or 52 checkouts, whichever came first. And on average, the books were expiring with eight checkouts. So my take on that is if eight checkouts of any book is hurting your consumer sales, you don't have a library problem. You have a completely different problem because there's no reason eight eight checkouts in a library shouldn't register a blip in your revenue one way or another. So if you, you, you pull all that back, the one thing I was able to kind of get a couple of publishers off the record to admit is where they saw a measurable impact was on bestsellers, on some key bestsellers, either the big celebrities or the long-term well-known, I, I hesitate to use a name because they're. I'll, I'll say James Patterson. He wasn't one of the examples, but your James Patterson level of author who constantly is cranking out books, huge backlist. If you're a fan, he's difficult to keep up with. If you read anything else, that kind of thing. Where there was anecdotal evidence of libraries hurting consumer sales, it was that category of author. That tells me two things. In my analysis of that, what I saw was, okay, so you've got solid brand names who, generally speaking, are not considered great literature, but they have a strong fan base. You've got a library that allows you to read widely without spending money, your own money on the books. Um, And you've got more and more books being published every year. So if anecdotally, your only evidence is your major bestsellers are the ones where you're seeing some softness in consumer sales as their library activity uh, increases. But even by Macmillan's own admission, you're also seeing overall ebook revenue from libraries increase. And generally speaking, libraries are known to drive uh, readership in two places, the bestsellers, you know, the, the best circulating books at libraries are always the best sellers. They're meeting demand. And then the mid-list where publishers rely on libraries, particularly on the print side, to have decent print runs because those library orders are the ones that ensure um, a mid-list book at least gets a 5,000, 10,000 copy print run because a lot of libraries will buy it where your average indie bookstore isn't stocking it. It's buried in the algorithm on Amazon. So libraries are a key factor in getting mid-list, any sort of attention in sales that then hopefully from the uh, publisher's perspective gets picked up elsewhere. So even that anecdotal evidence around the bestsellers doesn't justify Macmillan's line-wide change to their policies. If anything, it would justify, all right, we're going to window our, you know, certain category of authors or better yet, we'll just charge more for them. You know, so James Patterson, you're going to pay $100 a copy for your license for the first three months, whatever that window you chooses, and then the price goes down. If they had done that, I think there would have been there would still have been complaints because you're still charging libraries a lot and libraries don't like that. But I think that would have been more justifiable than a complete windowing where libraries didn't have access at all. Because now you're attacking libraries' core mission, which is equitable access. So the if you take all that, the Macmillan kind of and Macmillan's quick retreat in the pandemic where libraries were the only place, you know, one of the only places to get books, the that said a lot, like that they turned tail so fast. I, I want to say it was less than a month into the pandemic. 
And with the subsequent data that came out that library circulation surged, digital library circulation surged in the first six months or so of the pandemic, um, and that library revenue overall surged in 2020, all the indicators are if library availability was really hurting consumer sales, 2020 would have been the year that libraries would have, you know, stuck a dagger in some publishers' backs. And instead, 2020 turned out to be a pretty good year for publishers. 2021 turned out to be an amazing year for publishers. And 2022 is on track to be pretty good uh, and better than 2020. In the midst of in continually increasing library digital circulation. So in the available data that's out there, it's really difficult to make an argument that libraries overall are bad for uh, consumer sales. And even if you have a couple of isolated examples, net net, you still can't make the argument that libraries are bad for consumer sales. I just want to pick up on a couple of things you you mentioned there and that great, great explanation. And like, what a great, great sort of like, you know, um, at, a, at a higher level, sort of like, you know, representation of how complex this industry is. But um, just in order to transition to the next next part of the interview, where we're going to talk about the Department of Justice and Penguin Random House. But you mentioned a couple of things there. One is that um, the privacy issue is so complex when it comes to books and information. Um, an example that's come up on this podcast once in the past that I've mentioned a few times because it was so striking was a, a guest said that where she grew up, if you went to the local bookstore and got a book on how to get a divorce, you'd get a visit from the local priest within a few <laughs> days because it would get around town. Yeah. And I just bring that up just again, again, to sort of like ratchet up the complexity here, because there's this whole discourse about how, oh, why are you letting the al the the anonymous algorithms that you can't peer into at giant companies like Amazon use data to make recommendations for you? Why are you buying books online instead of going to the local indie bookstore where the bookseller knows you inside out? You know, and it's like, well, <laughs> you know, there's there might be some things where that's great, um, you know, right. when it comes to should I get the latest James Patterson novel, you know, but there might be other things where the anonymity and the discoverability, things that aren't available to you locally for maybe not so good reasons, because of you mentioned regional differences earlier in the in, in one of your responses here, um, you know, like sometimes things aren't the word local isn't isn't always good. Um, right. <laughs> You know, uh, and um, but that's just just to say that it's so complex. And then you but then you mentioned and so the other thing I wanted to draw on you mentioned that you mentioned the James Patterson level of of author. And that's where I want to move on to talk about the the sort of Department of Justice antitrust case against Penguin Random House's effort to uh, buy Simon and Schuster, because at, in a sense, the whole thing was framed in a just almost incredibly simplistic way. Um, around the issue being like basically basically the way it works is there's these there's this big four big five giant book publishing companies for people who aren't aware um and one of them is trying to buy simon and schuster which is this huge you know prominent sort of new york publishing house in the states and everybody in the book world is bothered by this for all kind or, or excited by it for, you know, for all kinds of different <laughs> reasons but the department of justice in the united states is currently engaged in a broader effort around antitrust issues related particularly like uh, the sort of proximate cause is actually the kind of tech world um uh and kind of dominance there i i would i would say um and trying to figure out what 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 do you do when you know the the giant monopsonies like amazon really do drive down prices for people which was the the old argument against antitrust is that the big if, if someone gained too much market power they'd raise prices right but it turns out you know amazon figured out various ways to kind of become the biggest by offering lower prices which kind of makes sense when you think about it uh but um so that that's become a problem because you know monopsony or monopolies are still problems um and so should the focus all just be on offering lower prices basically when you're when it comes to antitrust issues so so anyway this is this is just some sort of background to the fact that you know so there's this giant book publishing company that wants to buy another big book publishing company and merge them. And I would say to people listening who aren't familiar with this whole discourse, you might think, oh my God, you know, along the Amazon monopoly lines. Instead, the Department of Justice's line is basically, we're against this because it's going to bring down advances, paid quarter million dollar advances paid to authors are going to be less frequent. To, to, and that's not really much of a caricature of, of the case, right? Yeah, no, that's uh, it's 
I feel like the case in a lot of ways is a Rorschach blot. Um, and depending on where you are in the industry and your perspective on things, you read it differently. I think that is a fair summary of uh, the gist of it and the, the approach the Department of Justice took. Um, I feel like I, I've kind of... I feel like I understand somewhat why they went that way because it's, you know, the real argument against the merger in my mind is you've already got this one huge publisher who's pretty dominant already. You know, forget about advances. They've got their own uh, significant distribution system. They're, they are literally the biggest publisher, probably twofold over, you know, their number two competitor. Um, they did a similar merger 10 years ago that got them to be uh, as big as they are. Um, so the impact on advances in a lot of ways, in my mind, is the least important thing. And I think they made a pretty reasonable case that that might not even happen. Um, what got ignored, it, it got brought up on the fringes, but it wasn't the center of the DOJ's case. And I think ultimately this says more about capitalism and the government's consideration of what's okay that in that testimony you know there was uh there was a presentation around the amount of layoffs that were going to happen there was some lip service given to mid-sized publishers and the potential impact on those smaller advances which are the vast majority of authors <laughs> out there are getting much less than a quarter million dollar advances even at the big five where you know there's this myth that if you're a big five author you've got at least a six-figure advance that's ridiculous like your average you know take out the hundred or so million dollar advances that happen every year your average big five imprint publisher probably getting a nice five-figure advance which is paid out in four parts because that's the other thing people think oh a million dollar advance that person's a millionaire now they're a quarter of a millionaire up front they get another quarter of a million when they deliver the manuscript and then by the time the book is out i think they finally in that first royalty period i think is when they might get that last quarterly payment so this belief that um, these big advances are the deciding factor in whether the creation. So there's the big four, uh, big five, which is kind of a misnomer because there's there's a big three. There's two that are not as big as those three, Macmillan and um, Simon. Simon is hovering right around a billion. Macmillan is notably lower than that. I want to say a little over half a billion. Um, whereas you've got Penguin Random House, which is uh, upwards of two and a half billion. So the 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 framing of the big five is kind of flawed to begin with, because at best, maybe call it a big four, which includes Simon and Schuster. Really, it's a big three. Penguin Random House acquires Simon and Schuster. You have a unequivocal big one and everybody else. And I think that didn't that wasn't the core of the Department of Justice's case. They presented pieces of it enough that my hope is the judge sees all that and while the ultimate decision is going to be based around this case they built around advances i'm no lawyer so i don't know the nuances my, my one understanding is this prh could still win this even when all indications are the department of justice kind of proved it's bad because the letter of the law is not bad enough and so it'll go through. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad you got into this sort of ambiguities around the sort of like big, big one, the big three, the big five, the big, the big whatever. And, you know, again, these are like sort of conventional terms that are used in discussing the book publishing industry. But when you look into it, you know, like, and that's what the experts will use these terms. But when you look into it, just like anything, you know, things become questionable and kind of contested everywhere. Uh, but one of the remarkable things about it that was kind of like, I think, very telling and fitting at the same time about the the sort of like hearings and all that was how much of it was kind of hierarchy theater because you know when it comes to the big big n publishing companies well where was scholastic in in the whole discourse right which is something you've talked about where was romance writing and how like you know where was where was i mean you know self-publishing in all of this you know nowhere because it was hierarchy theater which is what a lot of the the conventional kind of trade publishing 
world is all about, right? It's a, it is about the big names. It is about the big stars. It is about the dream of becoming, you know, a, 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 a great novelist or book writer or something like that and being feted and sort of, you know, full page ads paid by your publisher for you, you know, big posters up in the subway or whatever about your latest book. Uh, it is about hierarchy theater, but then this really hilarious thing happened, which is that the sort of people who run these companies are really the guardians of that hierarchy. And they were in an uncharitable way of explaining it exposed as not really being able let's put it again to put it to put it in a terrible way not being able to talk well in this particular circumstance about how their business works and what they really are up to and how well they really understand it so i'll link to it but vox has had an article about it saying um book publishers just spent three weeks in court arguing they have no idea what they're doing <laughs> The Justice Department is suing to block Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster's proposed merger. The publisher's defense hinged on their own incompetence. Um, <laughs> and I was wondering if you could talk a little, I mean, basically more or less, I think I think it's, you know, it's that un, under oath, you know, to counter the claim that, that um, uh, you know, this, this merger would bring down advances. They basically said we have no, it's, it's a totally finger in the air, which way the wind is blowing business. There's yep. no predictability to it at all. Yeah, it was it was fascinating because the you could come away from that and be like, wow, this industry is run by a bunch of morons. Or you come away from it and what I unfortunately think is the truer take on it is it's an industry that has evolved into it's built structures that support its own myth-making. So there is a degree of truth in you can pay a million-dollar advance for a book that absolutely bombs, and you can pay $10,000 advance for a book that funds uh, bonuses for the entire company next year. There is some truth to the randomness of it, but pretending that PRH doesn't have built-in systemic advances to uh, offset some of that randomness, that was the part that was like, wow, I get you're under oath, and so you're trying to thread an awkward needle. I can't look completely stupid because investors and our authors and our staff are all listening to what I'm saying. So I got to be able to go back to the office and still run this company and have some modicum of respect. Um, but I can't look too savvy because then it's easier to prove that this merger is a bad idea. So I, I look at, and then you also have to look at who got put on the stand. You know, these are your seniorest of senior executives. They've made their way up the ranks in the old, or, you know, in the old systems of publishing. Um, I think it's arrested development, the joke about how much is a banana, 10 bucks. Like they live in that kind of world. I think one of them, even on the stand, made a comment about the average royalty being something like $100,000, which there's no math to support that. And at best, if that's true, it speaks to the number of exorbitant advances they've paid out to lift the floor to $100,000. But your average author at even your big five is not getting a $100,000 advance. So the you you almost have to kind of sift through the tea leaves of the testimony. Um, I think some of the most interesting testimony is what was thrown out. The analysis that the, forget his name, but the, the guy for PRH who did the analysis around the merger that led to the numbers around potential layoffs and where those layoffs would come and where there was overlap, et cetera, et cetera. There was a lot of interesting insight into the advantages PRH has over Simon & Schuster that PRH spun that as this is going to be great for Simon and Schuster's authors because they're going to get X, Y, Z. But at the same time, you look at that and like, wow. So the no, I forget. I think Simon Schuster's either the number three or number four in that big five. I forget uh, where exactly. Um, but if the big one is saying, yeah, look at these cute little guys. They're bad at this. They're bad at that. Bad at that. But this is the fourth biggest publisher in the U.S. 
in some ways i can see it reinforces that eh, that's how random it is but in other ways it absolutely reinforces how strong prh already is without this acquisition and for me i think it comes down to my ultimate frustration with the department of justice's framing of the case is more about the rules around antitrust and how much capitalism kind of gets to do whatever it wants to do and there was this was kind of the only way i think they could attempt to make this case because if they had made the case around other areas layoffs midlist publishers low, nobody cares because that's capitalism doing what oh yeah merger two companies 500 people lose jobs that's what happens sorry guys just give them you know decent severance and you're doing your due diligence so i don't think there's was another way for the department of justice to kind of really attack this case um and the belief that i think the other flaw is the belief that this is kind of a trial balloon to for them to ultimately go after amazon in my mind there's zero correlation between this and a case against amazon unless you know now you're playing four-dimensional chess they don't actually care about this merger this is their way to get data from publishers that they couldn't wouldn't easily get from amazon to make a case against amazon i do not believe that's what was happening here but you could make the galaxy brain argument that well that's the connection to going after amazon whether they win or lose they got all this great data i don't believe that happened yeah my uh, thanks for sharing that my my sense of um why the, the department of justice chose to make a case out of this was this sense of um that the giant the big book publishing companies are kind of the guardians and producers of high culture um and this was one of the reasons that there was this emphasis on the on the high bonuses and stuff like that but or no no um, not bonuses um uh what's the term sorry the advances the advances sorry yeah the book advances and like without these very big companies with lots of money at their disposal to pay rich people lots of money to write (laughs) books for us we'd kind of lose something essential to our lives and that that the that the publishing companies are kind of like you know composers and conductors at the same time of our of our society which is why what's left out uh of the this sort of like representation of what counts and what we really need to you know bring the government to bear to protect uh is so interesting and that that i'm going to use that i mean because there's so much we could talk about here um i'm going to link one one thing that that i'm going to link to in the in the transcription is this great uh piece you wrote for jane friedman's hot sheet uh newsletter about a very particular detail that came out of out of um uh, of data that came out of the trial or the testimony i should say which was um uh that you know prh was spending two percent it, its marketing spend was two percent of its revenue or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. right and you know if you're if you're a frustrated if you're just common sense might lead you to think that's a low amount of mar- money to spend on marketing <laughs> um if you're from another if you've done marketing in other industries that might seem like a really low amount i mean you can particularly think about like cars and consumer electronics or something like that right you know where it's trucks and things like that where it's just bombarding with marketing (laughs) um but um and if you're a frustrated author for example who like you know didn't get any money spent on your book you 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 know you, you got an agent you got an advance you got a book out with a big five publisher crickets and you know no second book because the first one didn't succeed and you're like well they didn't spend any money on marketing for my book uh but 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 of course and all those feelings are genuine and legitimate but of course the situation is actually more complicated and you made this point particularly about prh and you you mentioned earlier that some of the advantages that they have um i think particularly with like direct to consumer kind of interactions and things like that and of course one can't you know i mentioned sort of kind of sarcastically hierarchy theater but like that's actually a really important way of getting getting attention to books right you've got a friend at the the new york times you know who's gonna who's gonna publish a review of the book or the new yorker or or what have you um just you know the fact that they might not even look at books unless they're from one of these big name publishing companies already there's like there's a lot of marketing going on by the fact that they're attaching their name um to your book in the first place so you go into so a lot of the really great details about that but with respect to this sort of bigger question of what was really at stake here was kind of high culture and what was left out um i wanted to talk about that in terms of uh, particularly comics plus and you mentioned the flawed history of of that product and gaming 
which which has a similar kind of flawed history. Now, people might not know this, but like gaming, I mean, lots of people do know this. Gaming is an absolutely huge industry just in terms of money alone. It's absolutely huge. It's a big part of our culture and it's not all, it just, you know, but, but as soon as you start talking about it, because of, you know, the history of these things, particularly being associated with children, for example, things kids do, there's a lot of people just have a natural, I'm going to call it just a kind of patronizingly an impulse to neglect the reality out there, which is just there for you to see. Uh, it's it's there for you to see if you just open your eyes. Uh, but but these are very important things, comics and and video games, and they're not just for kids. Uh, and even if they were, they, that was still a pretty important part of our culture, which speaks right. to some of the sensitivity <laughs> around it. Um, but I was wondering if you could go into a little, just a little bit more detail. I mean, you spoke about it earlier about what Comics Plus is and 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 what its kind of mission is. Sure. So you know, so Comics Plus itself, it's a it, the, it's a product for schools and libraries that makes accessible through an unlimited simultaneous access model, so no holds, no wait lists, um, to schools and libraries to lend uh, the digital comics that are in the collection. We work with uh, nearly 80 publishers, a little over 80 publishers, um, who make, in some cases, their entire digital collection, in some cases, significant chunks, and in some cases, limited selections from their catalog available in our model. The So we're, you've got a couple of layers there. You've got A, uh, you need publishers willing to engage with libraries at all on digital content. B, on fair terms. And then C, on fair terms tied to unlimited, unlimited simultaneous access. So it's fundamentally, it's a, it's a subscription streaming model. Libraries sign up, they pay an annual rate, their patrons have unlimited access to whatever version of the collection they sign up for. And as a patron, you, you know, just like Overdrive or Hoopla, you log in and you can read whatever you want. The difference being it's all accessible there uh, at any time. You don't have, we don't do the single user license, so there's no limitations around, oh, sorry, Lynn's got that book checked out. You got to wait a week till he's done. We can read it at the same time, which allows libraries to incorporate it into programming. So you can do community reads without hoping a publisher will make an exception and make this book available for two weeks. You can be as flexible as you want. You can do book clubs. You can do um, basically anything that incorporate that requires uh, not having limitations to the content you want to make part of that programming. And regarding limitations, actually, that's really interesting. You mentioned uh, logging in. Um, so uh, to access, and this we're talking about digital digital material here, um, to access this, do you need to be at the library that you're a member of, or can you log in from home as a member of that library? Yeah, as long as, you know, libraries vary on which type of authentication method they use, but at a bare minimum, if you've got a library card, you can log in wherever you are. It's not it's not geofence, so you don't have to be, you know, if, if you're at the, if you're at the Boston, I want to use a customer we actually have. So Boston Public Library recently signed on with us. So if you've got a Boston Public Library card, you can read your content. Uh, in Comics Plus, wherever you are. The one limitation you would run into, and this is, you know, I, I learned this firsthand. We went to Spain over the summer. Uh, geo restrictions for the content itself still apply. So if you're a Boston Public Library customer, but you travel to Japan, let's say, some of our content is not uh, available in Japan. So even though if you were in Boston through Boston Public Library, you'd be able to read that. If you're in Japan trying to access it, it's not available in Japan. So those those are the limitations that, but for the most part, you know, library patrons, especially schools are, our, schools are nearly 70% of our customer base. Um, public libraries are like 29 and academic is like 1%. We're K-12 first, public library second, academic, we're you know, barely at the starting point with. Um, and in, in the school setting, we, we find most of our activity is happening in schools. They have access <clears throat> outside of school, um, but we've seen now two summers in a row. Our school, when, once school's out, we see activity tank significantly for, particularly for the younger books. And you remember the old days before Netflix offered profiles? 
So if you had kids, your Netflix recommendations were kind of useless. That's our popular <laughs> page in the global collection. If you're an adult looking for adult recommendations, you're going to have to use the filter to filter out the kids stuff. Because while kids are in school, they are driving our uh, usage activity and the popularity rankings. But I'd say about by late July, school had been out across the country. Um we started to see young adult and adult books breaking into the most popular. It's like, oh, wow, all right, kids are definitely offline because these books never crack into our most popular because we just don't have the adult reader base that we do relative to the younger uh, reader base we have. Uh, that reminds me of something, um, you know, it's not so much a controversy anymore, but like, you know, book piracy was a huge issue when sort of ebooks became a thing for, for people in the book publishing industry, just like music piracy was for people in the music industry. And uh, the music industry sort of famously figured out how to monetize um, uh, sales uh, initially through like iTunes, pay 99 cents a song. People actually wanted to do that. Uh, they yep. were okay with, with doing that, even though they could have gone on to date myself, Napster or, or whatever, um, you know, to get to get stuff for free. And, you know, that's still that's still kind of more of an issue, I think, that preoccupies people in the book industry than it does in the music industry, which has streaming and, and stuff like that, which is not very lucrative for artists. I just wanted to, at least in my understanding, I wanted to point that out. But um, the com in the comic book world, I actually know next to nothing about the internal debates and controversies of that world. Uh, our comic book companies, I mean, obviously the ones participating in in Comics Plus, see it as a revenue a revenue stream, sort of generating, you know, discoverability and popularity and stuff like that. Is there a debate in the comics world? I imagine there is about fears over people downloading stuff off, you know, Pirate Bay and like you know making things available digitally. Yeah, I mean, is a problem. For the publishing industry's long-term concerns about uh, piracy, comics is the rare category where that's legitimate, especially manga. Like, manga is notorious for um, pirate sites. Fan, they're, they're, uh, what is it called? Scanlations? Fanlations? Basically, hardcore fans will translate the Japanese originals before the American publishers even publish <laughs> their translations wow. and put them up online. You know, so Lynn is super fan and really into Naruto and is not waiting for volume 38 to be available in America. He's reading it in Japanese. He's translating it and then he's putting it up online for people like him who want to read it and don't want to wait for Viz to publish the uh, English edition. So piracy in comics has, I think, always been a steady concern. Comicsology, uh, Marvel Unlimited, DC Unlimited, similar to music. Uh, book, some book publishers kind of realized a viable consumer marketplace is ultimately the best answer for the majority of piracy. And then there's that category of piracy that uh, Brian O'Leary, I uh, forget what the specific term was, but basically his argument around th there's a category of piracy that it's not a lost sale. It's a sale you never were going to get. At best, it's discovery. At worst, it's people who were never going to buy your book. Stop worrying about them. The category of people you should worry about are the ones who you don't make it accessible. Either back in the day, it was you're delaying the ebook a year. They want to read it now. They're going to go to the pirate site. Why are you windowing ebook availability at the point where ebooks are becoming a viable thing? So comics, uh, piracy is, a, I'd say, an ongoing concern, bigger in some area categories of comics than others. When it comes to digital availability, these digital platforms have been around uh, long enough that pu where publishers might have discomfort is around the royalty models, not the accessibility. I I've yet to hear in my time here uh, a single public publisher even ask any serious questions about DRM or anything. They kind of take it for granted that the established platforms know how to manage digital content. And their worries are more about, am I getting paid? You know, if I go into this program, am I getting paid fairly? Or am I harming my consumer sales? You know, we'll, we'll still have some of those conversations. But I hear in the two plus years I've been doing this, I've heard no one openly discuss piracy as a concern and you know the success of comiXology in particular um i think created that viable consumer marketplace that gave your 
piracy is the easiest way for me to get this thing. I would have bought it if there was a way for me to get it. It removed a lot of that. And now the pirates, I think, that are left are the ones, like I said, we're never going to buy your book anyway. So, you know, there's programs established to kind of, you don't want to let it get out of control, but it's not the concern. I've seen that it was like 10 years ago when, you know, particularly in comics, it was a very legitimate concern. Speaking of established platforms, this is kind of a selfish uh, topic I'm going to bring up just because I find it interesting. But one thing we're in the right in the midst of right now is it appears Elon Musk is actually going to buy Twitter. Um, and Twitter is very important. And I know, like, you know, it's very important in book publishing, uh, sort of, you know, for, for author, you can follow authors, you can discuss, have debates about things. It's obvious for, for journalists and like, you know, news publishing and stuff like that. It's incredibly important um, in so many different ways. It's so important for our politics and things like that. Um, and I was just, I just, just totally just, you know, wanted to give you an opportunity to say, what do you think Elon Musk is going to do with Twitter if, if he indeed does just buy it? Uh, what was I reading yesterday? Uh, the guy that does the newsletter, the platformer that covers uh, the technology industry. Um, he's kind of like one of the bigger Substack guys who went out on his own, but he covers this space. And he had an interesting comment uh, yesterday. He's like, I've given up predicting what Elon Musk might do because that's the hallmark of Elon Musk. He's unpredictable. Um, I extend that to he's unpredictable in the worst ways. Um, as opposed to, you know, a positive form of unpredictable. But, you know, the things he said publicly, my expectation is Twitter gets worse before it gets better under his ownership. Um, uh, I'm not looking forward to it. You know, I, the way the uh, it was going up until yesterday, I was I had kind of forgotten. I was like, all right, that's going to fall apart. And Twitter will continue being, you know, the the weird little platform that could but couldn't. Um, and then, you know, the news popped up yesterday or the day before that, oh, it's back on. He's going to buy it possibly as soon as Friday. Um, I don't know. I, I just the I'm I guess disclosure. Not a fan of him on any metric. Uh, not as a person. Not as an innovator. Not as a businessman. Uh, I think he's very much. You know, what you get when somebody has money and a strong personality and maybe one good idea in their past. And that lets the I mean, the gap between him and Donald Trump is, in my mind, very narrow. They're cut from the same cloth. So I don't have a lot of positive expectations of Twitter under him. I'm not ready to shut my account tomorrow, but I'm. I've started kind of mentally adjusting to, well, what does, a, what does my world look like if I'm no longer using Twitter? Because Twitter is, you know, I've been on Twitter since 2007 or eight, valuable platform for me, met a lot of people, got a couple of jobs uh, back in the day versus, based on my Twitter presence and connections I was able to make. It's probably my most valuable social network just in you know across the board the overlap that happens there is unique i engage with people that any other platform i use <clears throat> only a percentage of them you know linkedin it's mostly publishing people i engage with there um instagram i've got a personal account that replaced my facebook account when i finally killed facebook and i've got a public one that's just about cars um my blog is my blog that doesn't get that much traffic from Twitter anyway. So, you know, three years ago, I'd be like, oh, that's going to kill my blog. And I'd be like, hey, whatever. Twitter's, Twitter has quietly become a weird little forest walled garden. They've successfully in some ways done where Facebook, I feel like, went too far and, you know, act actively engaged in you know, a walled garden. Twitter came up with this interesting porous model where links still happen there but conversation stays there like blog comments died years ago they're not coming back so you know i was talking uh, i tweeted about it today and was going back and forth with some people just getting different perspectives on where they might go and everybody i know is kind of in a similar situation twitter is this unique overlap of worlds that is irreplaceable yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Uh, definitely that I've been, you know, I've been sort of wondering, like, where am I going to follow 
journalists having their kind of like internal discussions and and debates about about things that you know like stories the stories that come out you get to see the sort of background things that happen yeah that, that's for me that's one of the for other people it's all twitter's great for all sorts of other things but for me for some reason it's just like getting to see journalists talk about their their research and you know analyzing each other's pieces and stuff like that and i there's just nowhere else now yeah. for any for anything like that my view on elon musk is uh you know just sort of like I do believe that one, with respect to electric vehicles, he realized no one was trying to make the best electric vehicle in the world. No, like, you know, and he, and th that the car industry was, there's a lot of nonsense in it. Um, yes. And if someone actually just tried to like build the best cars, they would have an opportunity there to, to, to succeed. Um, and particularly with the space industry and stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of nonsense going on there. No, no one was really just trying to build the best rockets the best way they could. And that those kinds of insights are actually really, really useful. Um, where, where of course, I mean, well, I say of course, but like where the, this kind of um, anti-intellectual kind of reactionary resentment part of him is the thing that I really, really personally don't, don't like, I'm not a fan of. And that's right. what led him to, oh, sorry about the beeping, but that's what led him to impulsively buy Twitter, right? <laughs> yes. Like it was that reactionary anti-intellectualism that, that drove that. Um, and by the way, I don't say that as that, I don't use that term as an insult. Like there's a history of anti-intellectualism in the United States that's coherent and self-identical right. and knows knows what it is right um yep. and uh mocking is a big part of that hey four eyes you know like stuff like that <laughs> you know um and uh and in particular that you know that whole discourse around twitter was was around you know oh people are being excluded from it because of their political views and it's like well that's sometimes a category i just want to take the opportunity to say like often people are making a kind of category mistake when they think that happens so for example if I saw this on some comments somewhere recently where someone said, oh, um, you know, the Republicans don't want to fund this or that project in the same way that a cheapskate doesn't want to use the fire extinguisher to put out the fire on their stove because it's a one-off expensive payment, right? And so, but as a result, they let the whole house burn down. And someone replied saying, if my stove is getting too hot, I just turn the temperature down. And it's like, you're not replying to what the person actually said, right? Like <laughs> right. when you do things like that, what you're saying to the other person is I'm, I'm either not uh, unwilling or unable to engage in good faith conversation. And you're actually, when you find yourself excluded from certain conversations, it might not necessarily be because of the content. It might be because of the way you're engaging with people. Um, right. And I think that's a huge issue, uh, particularly with Twitter. And, you know, as I, I got to say, like, I, I have a bit of a background in mergers and acquisitions and stuff like that. And when it was like, this whole thing is hinging around the fact that he he made a, an offer without doing due diligence or, or, or demanding it. And it's like, well, then it's, it's actually, he's fucked, you know? <laughs> and so now he's trying to make the, my view is he's trying to make it the best of it by saying things like, oh, I'm going to make basically an Alibaba or something like that. And this is going to be this is going to be for those who don't know like there's these sort of super apps in china for example that people right. use for everything right and he's sort of saying this is this is going to be that and it's like well good good luck good luck with that uh, i hope it doesn't distract you from from you know electric vehicles and solar panels too right. much you know um, <laughs> that's <laughs> my two cents um well uh gee we covered a lot of ground uh thanks very much for agreeing to come on the podcast again um, it's great to hear what you've been up to in the last two and a half years. It's just also interesting. And yeah, I particularly want to say best of luck marrying marrying startup and library together and comics, um, uh, you know, as you go forward. Well, knock wood. We're on a good trajectory and so far so good. So awesome. Got my fingers crossed. Awesome. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, Lynn. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.